Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. The screamers have taken over the public square and we're taking it back. So if you're on board with that, we'd love if you came alongside us and help in this effort. Uh, what we'd ask is if uh, you could recommend this program to friends or, or family who might appreciate an outlet like this. Uh, listeners recommending us to other folks is the number one way word gets out about what we're doing here. And we appreciate all the support we can get. I am your host. Glad to be crossing the divide with Jessica, the reporter Stone. Jess, how are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for asking. Good to see you as always. And we're so honored to be joined by David LePan, who served more than 30 years in the U.S. Marine Corps, retiring in 2015 as a colonel. David is a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He previously served as press secretary and deputy assistant secretary for media relations at the Department of Homeland Security. Colonel LePan has more than 30 years of military service and 20 years of communication public affairs experience at the highest levels of the U.S. Department of Defense. As a public affairs officer, he served as a spokesperson and advisor for several secretaries of defense, the 18th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Commander International Security Assistance Force and U.S. Forces Afghanistan, and for multinational forces during military operations in Haiti and Iraq. Dave is a graduate of Penn State University. I know Jess likes that. Still that, yeah. <laughs> Some in my throat with the (laughs) (laughs) he's also a graduate of the Naval War College and Air War College and is apparently pretty hardcore on the ice with a hockey stick. So, (laughs) (laughs) David, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, that's quite an impressive resume I have. Thanks for reading it back to me. Um, you wouldn't know that I was all of 45 years old. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 10, as you can tell. Okay, okay. So first, of, of all the impressive things that you've done, I was really, uh, I, I got a thrill when I read about some of your involvement on the ice. So are you a winger, blue liner, goalie? Where, where are you at? So the thing is, is that uh, so I grew up playing pond hockey yeah. uh, in Massachusetts, so we didn't really have lines <laughs> oh, just all over the ice. Didn't even have goals. Oh, man. I had a buddy in high school that uh, had a pond on his property and and ended up one one day putting the tractor through the ice as he was scraping the snow off the ice so that we could play. So I didn't I didn't really play organized hockey. I'm a huge hockey fan. I worked for the uh, the Penn State hockey team when I was there, uh, and I'm a big Washington Capitals fan. But uh, my allegiances have changed as I've moved around the country. So I grew, grew up as a Boston Bruins fan when Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and those guys played. And when I lived in Los Angeles, Wayne Gretzky played for the Kings. So how could I not be a Kings fan with, yeah. with a great one? Uh, and now here in D.C., I've got the grade eight. Uh, who's chasing Gretzky. So 
Oh man. Yeah. I'm a big Ovechkin fan. Like uh, just, just the, the individual player. It's hard not to like his play. He's a hard, but I got to tell you, I am very much looking forward to October 13th. I'll just say that the Rangers have a very different team going into October 13th. And they came out of uh, the shenanigans last, last fall or uh, last (laughs) spring. So that'll be a fun, a fun game. I'm a Rangers fan. If you can't tell. So I'm going to slide my camera just a bit. You can see the Stanley Cup over there. Oh, man, look at that. And you can see the, uh, the Ovechkin, some of my, from some of my swag. So that's pretty cool. Ovechkin swag. Yeah. Legit. Okay, so on a serious note, in one of your jobs, you were at the NATO-led International Security Assistance Force headquarters in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, I just wanted to know if you know, if, if you still know people there. And if so, how's everyone doing? I know families of people. Um, So, for example, one of my translators, uh, not mine, that the gentleman who's a translator uh, that I worked with when I was in Kabul, actually was able to write him a letter several years ago. And he and his wife emigrated to the United States. They have a, a child and I've been in touch with him. And it was his brother who is still in Afghanistan, uh, but was able to get out. So again, I, I know people that have family that are still there, uh, but I don't think there's anyone that I know personally that was left behind. Okay. All right. Yeah, there's a big difference between those that served for the military and those Afghan allies that served in the for the civilian side of the operation, the USAID and State Department. Um, it's a whole nother kettle of fish, but it's... Um, it's really interesting, as I understand it, because you guys do straight contracts at DOD. It was much easier to vet the people that worked, the Afghans that worked for the Defense Department than it is to vet the Afghan allies who worked for the civilian side of the operation. Because right. they do grants. Yeah, especially when we had a lot of U.S. and international companies. Yeah, a lot of contractors. Contractors and then, you know. Mm-hmm hired local Afghans to fill those contracts so that that connection wasn't quite as direct as those, again, interpreters, translators, and individuals that work for the Department of Defense. And while we're talking about it, Jess, any updates on on your people? um, You know, there are some uh, journalist organizations that are making more progress than any of the civilian side. I'm not as hopeful. I I shouldn't say that. I am hopeful, but it's just like every single day the plan changes that we're pursuing. And it takes 24 hours to vet a a plan and then the conditions change the next day. So it's it's challenging um, to keep his spirits up and just kind of make sure he's in the right place to take advantage of things, because not everything's happening out of every city in the country. And Kabul is getting pretty crazy so the State Department has just said, hey, we don't really want a bunch of people in Kabul. So if you don't need to come to Kabul, uh, don't. <laughs> we'll try to arrange flights in other places. It's hairy. And I don't know. I was actually curious, Corey, forget, forgive me for butting in. But um, had, Dave, did you watch any of the Blinken testimony? I didn't get to be across today's at all. I, I did not see any of the testimony. I've seen snippets and, and reports uh, on social media. Okay. Um, I did not see the testimony itself. I'm just curious, um, not to take this in a whole Afghanistan direction. I know we want to talk about it, though. Um, did you have any sense? I mean, Blinken has said, as I understand it, in the House Foreign Relations Committee, that there was no prediction 
um, that was as bad as as the Afghan government giving up after 11 days and, and the Taliban taking over in that, that space of that time. Does that make sense to you, like that they wouldn't have had a worst case scenario that would have included a, a rapid advance that was as quick as it was? From what I know, um, that was not the as quickly as everything disintegrated both across the country and in Kabul was much quicker. I think even the worst cases were several months, not days. And, and as we've learned from reporting since, both uh, the time that the Taliban has spent the last year sort of buying people off and preparing for this, you know, at the local level all the way up, and then the Afghan president's um, decision to just leave the country. I don't think anybody foresaw that happening as quickly as it did, at least not much in advance of it actually happening. I don't think that the, the uh, captain of the Titanic would have taken that route. I don't think no. he did take that route. Since we're talking about it, in one or two of the pieces uh, you wrote, you talked about the chain of command um, and how decisions like these are made. Uh, and then actions are executed. Right. And, and I'm wondering if you can give us, for, for those who aren't familiar with how that goes, you know, I'm curious, just as a layperson, what kind of advice was President Biden getting? Or uh, is it possible that he made up his mind as soon as he was, even before he was elected, perhaps as early as 2011, that this was something he was going to do if he was ever in a position to do it? Um, was he closed off to it? Like, how does that how does that communication go? And where might there have been unforced errors, very foreseeable unforced errors? Sure. Well, you know, the United States throughout its history has been founded on this principle of civilian control of the military. Again, based on how the United States was formed, we didn't want to go back to a king. We didn't want to have that kind of system uh, and so we've always had this, again, adherence to a system where ultimately the president, the secretary of defense, the, you know, the political civilians are the ones who'd make the decisions. The military provides advice, right? And advice like in anything can be accepted, can be uh, ignored, but the military then carries out the orders that it's given, whether that's what the particular commander advised or not. So you could have military leaders say, here's what I think I should we should do. The president says, I don't agree, we're gonna do this. And then the military leaders say, aye, aye, sir, and they carry out that duty. They've had their say, they had their opportunity. The other thing to bring into the discussion as well is, again, the military leaders are looking at it from a strictly military perspective, right? It's not their role and not their experience to weigh in on what the diplomatic elements are, right? That's for the State Department, for the Secretary of State to come into the discussion with, what does this mean diplomatically? What does this mean with relations to our allies? You have other parts of the government, again, weighing in from their particular positions of experience and authority. It's ultimately up to the president to weigh all of those to consider the political ramifications, the diplomatic ramifications, the military, the financial, all of those things, put all of that together. 
And often the president gets conflicting advice, right? So the military says, here's what I think I, we should do. The diplomats don't agree. They say, well, we, we should think you should do this. Sometimes there's more unanimity in the views, um, but often there's not. And ultimately the president has to make that decision. To your question about President Biden, his position on Afghanistan was pretty well known before he became president. Uh, he was not in favor of some of the things that President Obama did in keeping things going. I don't think he had you know, clearly made up his mind to the point that he said, I don't want to hear any advice. You know, I've already decided because he did want to know, how do we do this? I think the questioning now is what type of advice, what kind of options were presented, you know, the whole controversy over Bagram Air Base and whether that should have been kept or not. And if it had been, what would that have meant? One of the things from a military's perspective that the military leaders would have said, if you want to keep Bagram, here's what it will take to secure it. Here's how many more troops we will need to send into Afghanistan rather than pull out of Afghanistan to protect that, that space if we want to do so. If we keep Bagram, here's you know what we can expect in terms of flights in and out and how that's going to work. So they're going to give the president all those military logistics, uh, security, all of those aspects. Um, but they're not going to weigh in again, as I said, on the other elements, diplomatic, financial, other things that the president has to consider. Uh, does that help make a little sense? It does. It does. It it also um, sheds light on, and, and Jess, I, I want you to um, jump in here, but it also sheds light on what kind of extraordinary circumstance we found ourselves in, especially over the last year, we're now getting reports that General Milley was getting to that point where he was ready to refuse to execute orders from the president under uh, certain conditions if certain orders were given. I, I really wonder when we have the perspective of time 20 years from now, 50 years from now, how those last months of Trump's presidency uh, the last year or so, or even his entire four years in office uh, will be seen just really extraordinary. Uh, but Je Jess, what were you? Well, I, I had a, a thought based on what you said about Bagram, you know, that he, that the president would have been given from the military. This is what it takes to secure Bagram. You know, I hear a lot of people say, and I probably said it, why couldn't we leave the 2,500 troops that were there um, do you think that the 2,500 troops was enough to secure Bagram or we would have been, had a big, he would have been considering actually putting in more troops just to keep Bagram open? So part of the, that depends on what would happen to Kabul. Because again, you had mm. both. You also had the need to protect the international airport at Kabul. So do you have U.S. troops in Kabul at the airport? You all have other U.S. troops in, in, at the Bagram airport um, do you split that? Do the Turks take over Kabul International while the Americans uh, and maybe some coalition partners go to Bagram? So all of those uh, different options. The other thing, Jess, is the composition of those troops is just not the numbers, but the mm -hmm. specialties you have, right? Are, do you have the kind of forces you need to do security, to do logistics, to, to carry out all the things? But Dave, it does sound like he probably was given, he, he would have been given the option to keep Bagram open, but likely with more troops. 
or a different composition of troops. He could not have just used the 2,500 that were already there. That's my, that's my belief. Yes. Okay. So that, that's actually a really good nugget for people because a lot of us have questioned, I think, you know, even ordinary Joe and Jane, uh, who don't have any exposure to the military, what, why did it have to happen this way? And that's a pretty good guesstimate or assessment of maybe why he made the decision that he did. So that's, that's really helpful. The other thing I wanted to ask you is- oh, Hang on, Jess, if one sec. Let me, if I can just add to that point on, on yeah. Bagram too. Remember part of the consideration too is where are the Afghans, right? Mm-hmm. Where are the Afghans that you're trying to get out of the country? Well, yeah, we should point out that Kabul and Bagram are not right on top of each other. Right. How easy is it for them to get to Bagram yeah. versus being in Kabul already there and just getting to the airport? Because uh, Bagram is a distance away um, from the capital. So then do you have, even if you have control of the Bagram airfield, how do Afghans who you're trying to evacuate get to Bagram safely? So there are risks there as, as well as there were with risks them getting to the airport in Kabul. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Yeah, because I've flown into both airports and you walk right into Kabul when you're at Hikaya, but not right. Bagram. It's it's quite a distance away along a, a road. The other thing I was just curious about is um, another another thing that critics of the administration's decisions in Afghanistan with the withdrawal say is why couldn't Biden have renegotiated if, if he believed that Trump's deal with the Taliban was a bad one, that the May 1st deadline wasn't enough time, that even September 1st wouldn't be enough time or, or, uh, or the timeline he ultimately chose, um, why couldn't he do that? And I think we got a little bit of, of that from Blinken today who said that the Taliban was not going to, quote, let us move the goalposts. But I, I guess I have to wonder um, what your thoughts are on on the viability of renegotiating, you know, giving us more time, certainly to the next fighting season, because May 1st was significant because that's when the fighting season begins. Absolutely. So again, for listeners, uh, there is considered in Afghanistan a, a fighting season. And, and then, you know, because of the conditions. So in the winter, the Taliban particularly tend to go to ground. They recuperate. They do things uh, to get ready for the spring fighting season. So an argument could be made of having the withdrawal set so that it came during the midst of that that winter time when the Taliban was less likely to be active and less likely to be able to do the types of things that we we saw them do. the The other point is. That is, you know, the big question, Jessica, is could the Biden administration have renegotiated the deal that the Trump administration made, which was a horrible deal, unquestioned, that it was a terrible deal in what the U.S. gave up uh, to the Taliban. There was certainly concern, uh, as you said, that Secretary Blinken talked about if the Taliban refused to renegotiate and said, "Okay, we we said that we wouldn't attack U.S. troops if you guys follow uh, the agreement. And if you're going to break the agreement, then we're going to start attacking you again, which then causes, again, the possibility of, of U.S. and coalition casualties and the concern over that. There are those that think we should have attempted to renegotiate anyway, call, call the Taliban's bluff, get more time. But I think part of that was predicated on this idea that the collapse wouldn't happen so quickly that we did have some time. Because remember, the Trump deadline was was May. Yeah. And 
we went through that uh, and the Taliban didn't attack, even though we passed that deadline and had this new deadline at the uh, end of August and the beginning of September. So would the Taliban have allowed us to extend that even further? We don't know. We'll never know. Yeah. In an essay published in Just Security, you were speaking of a meeting former President Trump had at the White House with, as he put it, enlisted guys, and how he subsequently used that meeting to uh, sow division between the enlisted guys and military leaders. But you make an important point in this piece. You say, no one in the military, regardless of rank, knows more than anyone else of different rank, but they all bring different and valuable perspectives based on their experiences. You've worked for a wide array of arguably great leaders. Of all the people that you worked for, can you share examples of leaders who did this exceptionally well? It's interesting because right now there's a lot of criticism in the public square uh, about generals. I've worked for several four-star generals. Um, I admire all of them from General Marty Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to General Joe Dunford, who I worked for in Afghanistan and also uh, at the headquarters Marine Corps when he was the commandant. I worked for General, or not for, but I worked with General John Allen, who is now the president of Brookings. I worked with General Madison. There are pictures of General Madison and I in Kabul together. Um, Part of the thing about being a general, even though they're getting so much criticism, is it is an accumulation of knowledge and experience that you gain over the course of 30 or 40 years of doing this job, right? Everybody looks at Mike Flynn and says, what happened to him, right? Just being a three or four-star general doesn't guarantee that you're going to be held to a high standard. General John Kelly that I worked for at the Department of Homeland Security and that I worked with in the Marine Corps, another leader that I admire. They have all been criticized. I tend to give them all much more of a benefit of the doubt. One, because I know them. I used to tell people who criticize General Kelly after he left to go to the White House, the guy that I've known for so long, who spent an entire career, his adult life, serving this country in uniform, didn't just lose his integrity overnight, despite claims. But again, when you look at it, it's not just generals, it's senior enlisted leaders Mm -hmm. that bring that same type of experience and competence and uh, credibility to the jobs. Just being a four-star general doesn't make you the smartest person in the room. It does make you somebody that has a lifetime of experience at higher and higher levels of authority and responsibility, lifetime learning. So again, you look across society outside the military. That's why we refer often to our elders because they've been around, they've experienced things, they've learned things. That doesn't make you know an 80-year-old smarter than a 20-year-old, but you tend to listen to the 80-year-old because <laughs> the life experience of an 80-year-old is markedly different than a 20-year-old. Same way in the military, you have senior leaders, whether they're officers or enlisted, that have a lifetime of experience and learning that they bring to bear to these things. None of them are infallible. None of us are infallible. Uh, They make mistakes 
And I think as we've seen in the aftermath of the withdrawal, a number of them had, have said, yes, this didn't go the way we wanted. Yes, we've made mistakes. But remember again that the military is following the orders of the civilian leaders, is giving the resources to carry out the job and they do it to their best of their abilities. And sometimes they come up short. And every leader who's ever lost anyone, um, when I worked for General Dempsey, he kept a little wooden box on his desk. Mm. And in that box were index cards with the names, ranks, and detailed information about men and women in his unit that were killed. Mm. And it was to always be a reminder of the lives that were in his hands just carrying out his duties every day. He would carry a, a note card in his pocket. There were often uh, leaders that I saw that would carry note cards so they knew exactly how many service members were killed and wounded instead of saying, oh, it's about 4,000. Right. You know, rounding up or rounding doesn't pay enough tribute to the individual lives. And so those types of gestures that I saw from leaders, a quick story about General Kelly when I was in Homeland Security. Again, at this point, he's retired from the military. He still carries himself as a you know, former general. He's a cabinet secretary. So he garners you know, respect and attention where he, where he goes. There's a saying in the Marine Corps about eater, leaders eating last, right? Yeah. When you're a leader at whatever level, whether you're a general, you're a, a, a lieutenant, you're a sergeant, at, at various levels, you take care of your people, your troops. They eat first, you eat last. It's just a sign of respect. Even after all these years, uh, and as a cabinet secretary, General Kelly would insist, if we were going on a trip, everybody on the airplane ate before he did. Oh, wow. We attended a conference together in Miami looking at the, the immigration issue in, in um, Central America. Um, the Northern Triangle countries. The second day was about security. And so we were in a secure facility. We had to leave our phones locked up. We couldn't bring them in. It was all in a, in a setting. So as the press secretary, I'm dying. You know, I'm in ensconced for hours inside this secure facility without access to my phone. I have no idea what's going on out there. So as soon as we break for lunch, I run, get my phone out of the lockbox, take it out into the parking lot and start looking through what's going on. What am I missing? What's happening? So because I do this, I am missing lunch. Well, when I get up to where the, they are serving lunch, the last person standing in line is Secretary Kelly. And when I arrive, he backs up and pushes me in front of him. Wow. Huh. It's a picture of servant leadership. Exactly. The first among you shall be last, the last shall be first. So when you hear stories like this and, and learning about your own background, you know, there are so many men and women of true character, uh, admirable integrity that ended up working in the Trump administration. I'm curious about two things. Well, I'm curious about a lot of things, but one <laughs> is what is that decision? What's that thought process that leads one? Because listen, by the time Trump 
was elected president, everybody knew exactly who he was. You know, there was maybe hopefulness that he he would grow and the, the office would change him somehow. He'd grow into the office. But everybody knew exactly who who this individual is. What's that thought process that leads one to go to work, whether it's your own thought process or maybe you had some insights into General and then Secretary Kelly's uh, thought process? And then the second part of that is I'm sure you and certainly as you described uh General, well, then Secretary Kelly uh, was leading DHS before he became chief of staff. And one of the orders that he had to execute that that his department was charged with was arguably Stephen Miller's policy uh, with immigration on the south, the southern border. How do you lose sleep at night, (laughs) you know, knowing that there's something really wrong with this policy, but, you, you know, your your department is the one charged with carrying it out? Uh, or may, maybe that's an unfair way to ask the question. I don't mean to be un, you know, no, not no, no. even handed in it, um, but do you, I, I hope you understand what I'm asking. No, absolutely. First, I can tell you about my, you know, decision process, because I fit that category. You know, I was one who served in, in the beginning of the Trump administration. How did I come to that? One, because General Kelly asked me, and I, I knew him uh, I respected him. And for me, it was an opportunity to go back and serve, right? I had retired from the military a couple of years before. I was working for a military-related nonprofit organization doing great work for military kids, not TAPS that we'll talk about later, but a different one called the Military Child Education Coalition. But I'll back it up a little bit. When after uh, Trump was elected president, and we started hearing rumblings of, you know, General Mattis is partic- potentially getting a position in the Trump administration, General Kelly getting a position in the, in the administration. Me working for the nonprofit, I start thinking, what if one of them calls me and asks me to come serve? What am I going to say? Am I ready to go back into it? Am I, and am I ready to join the Trump administration. I obviously decided the answer was yes, because that's the path I took. Partially because back then I did have a little bit of hope that the office would change Donald Trump in ways that, again, over four years, people go, what were we ever thinking? How did we think it would change him? But back at the time, there was some glimmer of hope because everybody who takes that office feels the weight of the, you know, the presidency and and it changes them in some way. That didn't happen with Donald Trump, but there was some hope at the beginning it would. So for me, it was that. It was service. It was General Kelly asking me and knowing that working for him, he would never ask me to compromise my integrity or my credibility. Um, And he didn't in the time that we worked together. And what I told people afterward when they asked about how long he stayed, how long General or Secretary Mattis stayed in the government. Point is, is everybody's individual decision of where that line is, both the, the line bef- before you join to say, this is something I'm, I wanna do, weighing the pros and cons, and the line of when, when do you leave and how do you leave and under what circumstance do you leave? That's an individual decision. Um, I made mine, I uh, left within nine months after my departure from Homeland Security is when family separation 
uh, was instituted. Um, I have since learned through through reporting that there was a pilot program uh, down at some part of the border while I was still there. It interests me because at the time I was first on the record echoing what Secretary Kelly had said publicly about considering separating families in an effort to deter them from bringing children on the very dangerous journey mm-hmm. north. So he talked publicly, both with the press and with members of Congress, about considering separating families to keep them from bringing children on this dangerous journey. There, at some point after that, I am on the record as the spokesman and as the press secretary saying it's no longer being considered. Mm. It was only after I left the department that reporting started to show that there was a pilot program that was undertaken uh, along the lines of, of what later became a full-blown policy. To this day, I don't know if I was kept in the dark purposefully so that I couldn't talk about it or if that word just never you know, got to the secretary's level and to my level. I, I don't know. I do know that I would not have been on the record saying that we weren't considering it if it was in fact going on. So I am glad that I left when I did because family separation would not have allowed me to to sleep at night. It would not have allowed me to to continue to serve um, in that capacity. Without telling tales out of school, I'd say that Secretary Kelly had a similar view of being asked to serve. Uh, again, somebody had given his entire adult life to serving the country, was asked by the president-elect to serve. And since that if, if Hillary Clinton had been elected president and asked him to serve, he would have said yes, too, because he didn't see it as a political, even though it was a political appointee position, he didn't see it through those political lenses. He saw it as a way to serve the country again. Uh, and that was similar to my thought process. People now may look back and, and say that I was naive but I did go in eyes wide open because I knew the pros and cons. Uh, and then I left when I couldn't faithfully do it anymore. Was there something that led to your breaking point, Dave? Um, it was a series of things. You had left two or three months after General uh, at Secretary Kelly became chief of staff. So I would yes. imagine it, it was very different working conditions for you once uh, Secretary Kelly left that post? Yes. So to your question, Jessica, the part of it was uh, after General Kelly, Secretary Kelly left to become the chief of staff at the White House, um, Elaine Duke, who was the deputy secretary, became the acting secretary and I worked for her. uh, And I had a great time. We got along well. Um, I was confident I didn't know, one, if she would stay in that job, and if she didn't, who would come in behind her. Mm-hmm. But I knew whoever that person was, I wouldn't have the same relationship that I did with Secretary Kelly, and I wouldn't have the same confidence that I would have, again, protection from being asked to certainly not to lie, but to damage my credibility and integrity. I was never going to play the the fake news game. I was never going to attack the press 
So if it had gotten to that point, that would have been a breaking point. And there were several other things, again, with in my role as a spokesperson, learning things through presidential tweets <laughs> and, and having to react to them was just, you know, mind boggling. So a combination of factors. So it was so I got I got to DHS in at the first week in, in February and left uh, at the end of um, October. Yeah. One of the things that we've learned from Elizabeth Newman, who we've also interviewed for the podcast, the former Assistant Secretary of Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention, I think was her title, who I know you continue to to uh, to know and um, and visit with. Um, she said that there was very that they that DHS got no warning about um, about the Muslim ban in advance, as I recall. Is that right, Corey? There was there was no communication ahead of that announcement with DHS. I would Elizabeth would have, I think, a better idea because I think she was there. Okay. Um, I arrived on the 3rd of February, so it was right after. Okay. And I arrived into the debacle <laughs> in the aftermath um, and went with Secretary Kelly to the Hill where he said this won't happen again. You know, we didn't do this right. Could you maybe help our audience understand why that was such a big deal? Um, that 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 big policies aren't ruled out like that. You know, on 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 a dime. Yeah. That they're typically. You know, how many months would have gone into in in other administrations you've served in? How many months would have gone into a rollout of that kind of decision in another administration? Certainly months and not days. So again, by the time I arrived on the 3rd of February, it had already been released and caused all the problems that it did. Mm -hmm. So between the 20th of January and inauguration and the end of the month, so we're just talking, you know, a two-week period, they implemented this brand new policy. And so one of the things that Secretary Kelly, when he went to the Hill to pledge to members of Congress that it wouldn't happen again, was they weren't going to just roll this thing out willy-nilly the way they did the first time. They would have taken the time to make sure that members of Congress knew what was coming, that the workforce knew it was coming. The thing that it disturbed him most is that Customs and Border Protection officers on the line that had to make these decisions were forced into dealing with the situation without having advanced guidance, training. That's the thing is that so... You talked about my experience. We're coming up on Monday with the at the 10th anniversary of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military. I was at the Pentagon when that happened. Part of the reason that that uh, change in department policy went almost without any problems is because the department took the time to get it right. It took months to develop the policy. It thought through this, what we call second and third order effects. If we do this, what happens? What if we do this? This happens. How do we protect from that? How do we make sure everybody's trained? How do we make sure that everybody has the information they need to do their job effectively? Um, they look at every element of it. And that's for a major policy like what became known as the Muslim ban. That's what you needed. That's what didn't happen was taking the time to think through all the implications, make sure the people who were being asked to implement it and enforce it had every tool necessary for them. 
They had the knowledge, they had the training, they had the information, they had everything. That's what didn't happen. And so when I arrived in the aftermath of that, the sense that I got was that it, the policy had not been well coordinated. It's not, I don't think it's true that nobody in DHS knew what was coming, mm-hmm. but I, I got the sense that they only knew bits mm-hmm. and they didn't know the full extent of what was coming and when it was coming. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go back a little bit. We, we usually cover a lot more of your biography, but this is, I just, we just have so many questions about what's going on now and the last few years, but in the early 2000s, so uh, for, for the benefit of our audience, Colonel LePan enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1980, decided to, you were a Marine for a, about a dozen years and then decided to go to school. I'm out a lot of school. <laughs> we, we won't get into the uh, the Penn State thing, although shout out to a couple of my best friends, uh, Ira and Myla Rosenheim. They're uh, they're graduates from Penn State and uh, they enjoy listening. My whole high school went there. I was the one person who didn't, Dave. So that's why I have to tease you about yeah. being a Nittany Lion. <laughs> well, and there's an there's an L.A. connection. So I was living in Los Angeles and, and working at a restaurant downtown. I was managing a restaurant downtown, engine company number 28. And our general manager had gone to he UCLA? I think he went to UCLA. But anyway, one of his good friends was a professor at Penn State. So when I was deciding that I needed to leave Southern California and move back to the East Coast to be closer to my family and to go back to school to finish my degree, because I had dropped out of college and enlisted in the Marines Mm. and then got my commission as an officer without a college degree back when you could still do that. So when I decided it was time to leave and go back to school to finish my degree, my LA friend put me in touch with his old LA buddy who was a professor at Penn State. And there I went. <laughs> yeah. And then and then a lot of like I said, Naval War College, Air War College. Uh, but then in the early 2000s, you were your career took uh, you, you hit another chapter in your career. You were a spokesperson for the Department of Defense and early 2000s. So obviously a critical historic time. Did you have any idea what you were getting into at that point? None. Because again, when you think about it, and I've, I've talked to people about this, my first time at the Department of Defense press office was from 2000 to 2003. Oh, boy. I was giving, <laughs> amongst my duties and responsibilities, U.S. Central Command. Oh, boy. Which, as most Jessica knows, but as most people know, covers a large swath of of the world to include the Middle East and and South Asia. Yeah. And so in that three-year span of time in which I was assigned to that office, we had the attack on the USS Cole, Mm. the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the start of the war in Afghanistan, and the start of the war in Iraq. Wow. Just in my three-year span of time. So when we talked earlier about me writing a book, I've had people say I should just write a book for my Pentagon years, Yeah, uh, much less everything else. Where were you on September 11th, Dave? So in the the category of dumb luck, uh, I was, again, assigned to the Pentagon. I left the night before. I flew from Dulles Airport, which was on 9-11, one of the flights that was used. Yeah, it was hijacked, yeah. came from Dallas. I flew to Southern California for a conference. 
So I arrived, uh, got up that morning um, to get ready for a conference. Got a call from my wife that said, turn on the TV and watched from from Palm Desert, California, uh, all of this unfolding. Uh, And then it took me five days to get back to D.C. and back to the Pentagon. When I got back to work, it was building was still smoldering. Obviously, the situation had changed a bit from the day of the attack and the immediate after. But it was I got back there and I went to a vantage point um, just outside the Pentagon and saw the gash, saw, you know, the aftermath, called my boss and said, when do you need me? And he said, we've got it covered. Just come in Monday morning. Um, so that following Monday, I went to work back at the Pentagon. Now, the office in which I worked wasn't at the impact zone, but as people have learned from that day, there's all kinds of stories of people that got up and went to meetings and walked into danger un, unbeknownst to them. So, one, one program I was, I was curious about that you played a key role in forming was the Media Embed Program. How did that come about? And in retrospect, did that program serve its purpose for the for the DOD, for the press, uh, for the American public? I think it served its purpose for all of those things, for the press, for the American public and for the DOD. Uh, And I'll explain why after I talk about how it came about. So people may remember that at the beginning of combat operations Afghanistan, it was a very small, relatively small US force. It was special operations forces working with CIA and working with the Northern Alliance. So there wasn't a lot of military operations or US military operations. And the ones that were, again, were special operations. So they tended not to want media to come along and see what they were doing. So the opportunities for news organizations to get a you know, frontline view of what was happening in Afghanistan were very limited. As things started progressing and it looked likely that the U.S. might go uh, into Iraq, the Pentagon actually convened a series of meetings with news organizations. And I haven't looked lately, but I assume that it's still on the DOD website today. You can find the transcript. So not only were they holding these meetings, they were creating transcripts and posting them publicly where people could see bureau chiefs and others from news organizations sitting down with leaders of the Pentagon and saying, if we go into Afghanistan or if we go into Iraq, what will that look like? And that's where the media embed program was built uh, or was created. The op- one, we wanted to give the more opportunity because it was going to be much more conventional fight than Afghanistan had been. Give the opportunity for news organizations to get with frontline troops across the board, naval. So we put reporters on uh, on Navy ships, aircraft, air bases, with our uh, army and marine infantry and ground units that were going to go in. If and again, at this point, the decision had been made, um, but it was all in anticipation. Of. And it's interesting now, you know, given the some somewhat controversy over uh, the COVID vaccine. Part of what we had to wrestle with at that time was giving vaccines to reporters. Mm. Which vaccines do they need to have to go into a combat operation in Iraq? Is it gonna be voluntary? Is it gonna be mandatory? 
are we going to provide, we the military are going to provide them body armor? Mm. Or are they responsible to provide that themselves? Because there was concern at the time of chemical weapons, gas masks. Who's going to provide gas masks? Didn't these organizations buy their own and just supply their people? Does the military get them? What happens if somebody is wounded or killed? What's so we went through all of these things in, in ground rules. You know, we're we're conducting operations. We have some amount of classified information. We don't want the enemy to know what we're doing in advance. So reporters had to agree to a set of ground rules in order to be embedded with military units. So we thought through all of these elements of it. I, I was one of the main people in the press office uh, that helped design the program. Um, I went down to Central Command Headquarters in Tampa and talked to the units down there and said, this is what we're going to be doing uh, if we go into Iraq. And I need to, you to all tell me how many reporters you can take, right? So. What was their reaction? Were they were they like, no way, we don't want extra baggage or yeah. anybody welcoming? Uh, it, it was a mix. A lot of them, public affairs types like me, welcomed it. And I'll, and I'll get to your question in a second about the benefits of it. So it was identifying, okay, how many of our different forces that are going to be involved, how many news media representatives because they're not all reporters, they're cameramen, they're sound people that you write. So we, we call them news media representatives. How many people uh, were we going to put? We also recognize that uh, we are going to offer opportunities to U.S. media, to international media, and to local media. Because, you know, the, the local newspaper around Camp Pendleton is very interested in what happens to the Marines from Camp Pendleton, for example, or Fort Bragg, or, you know, all these major installations. So we we're going to have local coverage, national coverage, international coverage, and we were going to leave it to news organization to decide how many and who to send. We didn't want to be in, we, the Pentagon, didn't want to be in the position of deciding, okay, we're taking Jessica Stone. <laughs> Her news organization would have to say, we want Jessica to go. And then we'd say, we're happy to take Jessica, but we're not going to make the decision of, we weren't going to be accused of playing favorites. I remember going to a friend of, who, someone who's become a good friend of mine who worked for Arab News you know, the largest English language newspaper in Saudi Arabia. And she still tells a story where she came to me, you know, very late in the game and said, David, I, I've heard about this embed program. Uh, do you think I should do it? And I said, don't worry, I've already signed you up for it. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew it was important to have, you know, Al Jazeera and Al Arabia and, you know, news organizations that reached publics in the Middle East and not just a U.S. audience. In terms of its effectiveness, people, some critics have claimed that DOD wanted to do it in order to create sympathetic reporting, right? The idea that reporters would get Stockholm syndrome and would only tell good stories, you know, because they would feel somehow beholden to the military or they would get to know the troops that they were with and they would pull their punches and they wouldn't tell the stories of what was really happening. One, I think that's a huge insult to anybody in the news business to think that you would compromise your principles and 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 pull punches uh, for the reason. But the other one was, is we recognize that Saddam Hussein 
and his military and, and, and civilian apparatus was very well practiced in the art of deception and in propaganda. And we understood that the best way to combat that was with firsthand accurate reporting from news organizations. So the, the best example you may remember from the war, the spokesman for the Ministry of Defense who became affectionately known as Baghdad Bob. There are people at the Pentagon that claim that I coined that name. I don't know if I did, but okay. But anyways, we called him Baghdad Bob. And there is at some point split screen footage of Minister of Information out there talking about how there are no US troops, the infidels have been repelled. There's none of, none of them have made it to Baghdad. And then on the other side of the split screen is a Fox News crew with an US Army armored unit about a mile away from where Baghdad Bob was giving his press conference. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, here's the truth. Right. The example that I give to people to prove the point or to make the point was an incident involving a checkpoint shooting with Marines. Uh, Marines were operating, a vehicle came toward their position. It was at night, you know, confusion. They end up firing on the vehicle only to discover it was a van full of women and children. Oh. Unfortunate, tragic consequences of war. But the reporter who had been embedded with the unit was able to tell the full context of the story that despite the tragic outcome, he talked about how the Marines and other units were under this threat of these vehicle-borne IEDs, that they would come racing up and explode and kill people, mm -hmm. that they went through escalation of force procedures to try to stop this vehicle from approaching them short of having to use lethal force. So they took all of their escalatory steps to try to end this before it became tragic. And then when all else failed, they, they had to use deadly force. And then the remorse of the Marines when they discovered the victims. Mm. So you get the full flavor of what, and I tell people that, you know, a traffic accident happens here in the United States. People arrive on the scene. They weren't there when it happened, right? The reporters, even the police, they weren't there when that happened. They don't know what happened. They have to rely on eyewitnesses. They have to rely on memories. They have to rely on things like that. Here we had a reporter that was there watching and was able to tell the full context of a tragic and terrible story. And that was the thing, as much criticism as Donald Rumsfeld got, much of it justified, but he recognized, he used to keep in his jacket pocket, what are the 10 worst things that could happen in Iraq, right? From chemical weapons to biological weapons, to mass casualties, to, you know, all these things. So he said, war is ugly, bad things will happen. We're not going to avoid being reported on. We just want to be reported on fairly. Yeah. And by putting reporters and journalists in the front lines and having them report firsthand, we will get a balanced perspective of what was going on, not a one-sided perspective that only told our side of the story. One of the things that I was really curious about is, is in some of our other interviews, particularly with Bill Crystal, we've talked about the, the fact that there wasn't um, a, a, a buy-in from all Americans in these wars, that they were born by the US military and their families, 
almost exclusively. We didn't do war bonds. We didn't have any sort of save the can so you can make a weapon out of it kind of drive like we did during World War II. Um, aluminum, I mean, you know, that's kind of what I'm driving at. And so I, I guess I wondered if that entered into your thoughts about why the embed program was important. And if you think that it helped people understand at home, the sacrifices that people in their communities were making. I agree that by and large, the American public after the 9-11 attacks and the shock and the, 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 the unity immediately afterward. Um, one of the things I do think personally that President Bush got wrong was encouraging everybody just to go back to normal life. And, and that allowed the military to go to war and not the nation to go to war. But with the embed program, it was an opportunity for the public to see firsthand or, you know, through the lens of, of, of journalists on the scene uh, in written reports, what was happening. Uh, a lot of the military folks who had embedded reporters had mixed feelings. One, this is somebody that didn't train with us. This is a civilian. What's going to happen? Um, are they going to know what to do? Are they going to inadvertently give our position away to the enemy because they, they're not schooled in what we're doing? But they also loved the attention and the fact that somebody was telling their stories. And we had a lot of positive feedback from families hmm. who were hearing about the stories of their loved ones and what they were going through and what was happening. Uh, there are countless stories of, of servicemen who are wounded in combat and reporters who are embedded with the unit handing off their Thuraya phones, their satellite phones, and allowing them to call their families and say, hey, I've been hurt, but I'm okay. I'm alive. Yeah. So there was this bond, again, not to create Stockholm syndrome and not to get reporters to pull their punches, but it did allow the American public to get a view into the war that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And they had had in, in no really in no previous conflicts. You know, there was a little bit of that that happened in Vietnam, but nowhere near the extent of what we saw. The thing that I think that went wrong with the embed program starting a little off is what we call the soda straw view, right? You had a unit in combat and you had this dramatic footage of a firefight or, you know, what was going on there. And people lost the broader perspective of what was going on. You had a story about a particular unit that hadn't been able to be resupplied and they were only eating one meal a day. And it caused this big outrage of, oh my God, you know, our troops are in combat and we can't even feed them. Right. That wasn't going on across Iraq. It was one particular unit at one particular time. They had problems with logistics, but it was that soda straw view that was one of the negatives where people lost sort of the larger perspective. Some of this I blame on news organizations for allowing it to focus so much on the, the tactical level with the reporter there and not pulling it back for the, the viewers and saying, okay, that's what's happening here, but this is what's happening across. I was going to say, in my experience, I needed the editor to bring in the 40,000 foot view. I was telling them what I was seeing, right. but it was, but it was great to have somebody say, well, we, we heard this, you know, this announcement here and this announcement here, and this is going on to bring greater context because otherwise, yeah, you, everything seems dramatic when you're not in the military and you're watching all of this crazy stuff go on and you're, you know, you're seeing the odds of these people. Plus like, 
I have to just be honest. Like I had never seen how impressive our military was up close until an embed. Like you just, it is, it is like nothing you can really imagine, except maybe in some of these really highly technical uh, war movies, you know, you just, I did not have an appreciation or even the kind of respect that the military deserves until I saw them up close because, you know, when they're home, they're training or they're, or they're, um, or they're not coming home in good shape. Those were the stories I was telling when, when I was back here domestically. So now you can have the same affliction that those of us who have served in uniform does of never being able to watch a military war movie without critiquing all the bad stuff that they've gotten wrong. I'm not quite at that level, but fireworks were, were bad for the first couple of years after I came back. Wow. <laughs> I wanted to ask, after, after leaving your job at DHS, you became a vocal critic of the Trump administration's practices and its dealings with the press. First of all, it, I'm so glad that we're talking about this, and I'm so glad that we have Jessica as, as my partner in crime here uh, to give perspective uh, as a reporter. Well, it, you cited the interconnected problems of the unprecedented level of lies and distortion, the, the constant vilification of the press as, as, quote unquote, the enemy of the people. Well, at the same time, the scores of administration officials who were very quick to go on background or give anonymous quotes only to have Trump claim fake news for anything he didn't like. So my question is, can we find our way back or or has the institution been permanently damaged? I think we can find our way back. I have not been happy that it hasn't happened more already. And I say that because I still see instances where government officials are hiding behind anonymity as a de facto position rather than rarely. And I would say I saw this before the Trump administration. I saw it in the Bush administration. I saw it in the Obama administration to a less extent, though. You know, there were times at the Pentagon where Pentagon officials would only do interviews on background. They didn't want to have their names associated with them. I thought that that was overused at the time. The whole thing went over the top with, you know, during the Trump administration. When you had government spokespeople telling reporters no comment off the record, it's just <laughs> mind boggling. They just like to hear themselves say off the record, Dave, let's be honest. <laughs> but, but again, I, so I've been a big proponent that the Biden administration has the task of rebuilding the public's trust and credibility because it was so damaged during the last administration. Yeah. But I think what we're seeing is that the American public hasn't quite caught up to that yet, um, but neither has the administration. I think that they need to do more to put people on the record. One of the things General Dempsey used to say that I thought made a lot of sense is, look, I'm a four-star general. I'm the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What I say should come with the credibility of my experience in my office, right? I put my name on it. If I'm just another anonymous official, how is the public to judge what I say versus what anybody else says, right? If all you have is anonymous or unnamed officials. The other thing is, as Jessica knows, the term senior official gets <laughs> misused all the time. Um, you know, I was a lieutenant colonel at the Pentagon and I was being called a senior, you know, military official. 
it does a disservice to the public to to not again speak with credibility by putting your name on things and as a spokesperson you know as a press secretary somebody whose job it is are there times that i would go on background with reporters absolutely because i wanted to provide context i had there are certain reasons but 90 percent of the time i would try to be on the record because it matters i should put my name on it i shouldn't be afraid of the repercussions from the president from anybody else that if I speak the truth that I'm going to be called out or shamed because my name was attached to it. I think saying things behind the cloak of anonymity damages the credibility, but also, again, causes the public to doubt the information that they're getting. How do you weigh one against another? If you read an entire story that's full of unnamed sources and there's no names involved, how are you to judge you know, whether they're talking to a plumber who works at the Pentagon <laughs> or a four-star general. Well, and I think we got used to a steady diet of that during the Trump years. And we already had been even maybe prior to that, right? But yes. I, since you're bringing up the word anonymous, Dave, oh, right. <laughs> um, I'm curious about your relationship to Mr. Anonymous, who penned the 2018 New York Times op-ed criticizing President Trump, later outing himself as the chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security. I don't know how long you would have worked together, uh, probably very briefly, but did you at any point suspect that um, Miles was the uh, was the the anonymous that about which there was so much scuttlebutt and, and uh, chatter in Washington? Yeah, I did not. I first Miles and I did work together at Homeland Security for that nine, 10 month up period that I was there. Uh, he was a special assistant um, doing things uh, before he you know, later became the chief of staff. Um, so I've known him since that time. I did not have any inkling that, that he would be the person identified as having written that. But at the time I also, and this is, it goes back to your other point about anonymity. I learned working in this town that if you allow yourself to get upset by leaks, that you're going to drive yourself crazy. The example I give, uh, right before we kicked off operations in Iraq, the New York Times published part of the Iraq war plan. As you can imagine, Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was none too happy with the fact that classified war plans appeared in the New York Times. He convened an investigation into it. I was interviewed because I was a spokesperson. I was out there talking to the press. Uh, lots of people were interviewed at the end. At the end, they never discovered who provided the information. And I always used to use that in an example to say if if the Department of Defense couldn't identify the person that leaked the classified war plan to the New York Times. How do you think they're ever going to find anybody in the apparatus who talks about much more mundane, thing, mundane things to reporters all the time? You can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out who's leaking, why they're leaking. There are so many different reasons for people to leak information. Again, it's a fool's errand to try to figure it out to me. So while there was much speculation about who's this you know, author of Anonymous, I didn't play that game because I didn't really care. <laughs> did, did he accurately describe, though, the concerns that 
it sounds like you had, we know that Elizabeth Newman began to have and, and tried to thwart actively where possible the, the president's agenda when it can, you know, sort of conflicted with their morals. I think so. And, and again, it goes back to the point I made earlier about everybody's personal choice about in the context of joining an administration, leaving an administration, um, also in carrying out policies. Obviously, the government couldn't function if everybody in the government got to decide what we were going to do and not do. But everybody who is involved in the government does have to make a personal choice about what they can going back to the point about looking themselves in the mirror or sleeping at night, right? If you're asked to do something, at some point you decide, I can do this or I can't do this. At some point you have to decide, this is bigger than me. And while I'm not really happy with it, that's not my role. Um, I'm not the decider. Uh, but everybody individually has to be comfortable with that. I think stories of those in the administration that saw some of the dangers of, of Trump administration policies and didn't necessarily disobey directly, but found ways to slow roll, found ways to deflect. Some have talked about, again, if you ignore something, the president forgets about it. <laughs> so it's not as if you're actively disobeying something, you're just hoping that it dies uh, on its own, either because it's been slow rolled and it's taken too long, or the president's on to the next shiny object and, and forgets about what it was that they were they're doing. And there are certainly stories of that nature where things that he brought up just were just, you know, people ignored them and he never brought them up again and they just went away. Well, there is so much more I want to ask you about. I mean, just get, I, I wanted you to bring us in the room of prepping Secretary Gates and then Secretary Panetta for press conferences. There's just so much I want to ask you about, but um, there's something really important. Oh, you're going to show <laughs> I've got to see it. Oh, man. So I don't know if you can see this is General Dempsey and Secretary Panetta mm -hmm. and George Little and I. So George Little was Secretary Panetta's uh, press secretary, and I was General Dempsey's, you know, public affairs advisor. Oh, that is awesome! And this was a prep for Meet the Press. Wow. Well, yeah. I <laughs> next time we get together, I want to dive deeper into that because I would love to get inside of those uh, those those prep sessions. But there's something really, really important that we want to ask you. We talked about it a little bit before taps. Mm -hmm. Jessica, could you give us a little intro background? And then um, we'd, I'd love to hear uh, from you, Dave, about this uh, really important charity. Yeah, I don't know a lot about it, but I, I wanted you to take the opportunity to talk about it in part because I know that it's Suicide Prevention Month um, and that everything that's going on in Afghanistan is really triggering for a lot of veterans. And um, we haven't even gone into the emotional impact on you personally having served so many tours, but... What are you doing with TAPS and how is it helping uh, service members when they are retired or medically retired? So quick background, uh, TAPS is the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. It was established in 1994. So before the 9-11 attacks and the two wars that came of that, uh, Bonnie Carroll, who's the president and the founder, uh, her husband was an active or was a uh, National Guard 
general. Uh, he and several other soldiers were killed in a plane crash in Alaska. In the aftermath, Bonnie went searching for support and services and found that there were none available. The army wasn't doing that and there were no private organizations doing that. So as a lot of nonprofits grow up, um, she started one to fill that gap and to meet that need. And so TAPS is an organization that provides compassionate care, support services of various types to anyone grieving the loss of a service member or veteran, regardless of cause of death or location, which is important because fewer than 5% of the families that are coming to TAPS now are a result of combat casualties. Hmm. The majority are suicide Hmm. and accidents and illnesses. And this is a really key point is because for a lot of people, the thought is that now that troops have been withdrawn from Afghanistan, we aren't going to see military casualties the way that we saw before. The truth is, is that we are still seeing high numbers of casualties. And in some cases, it's people that have come back from a war with invisible wounds. And whether they're completing suicide because of issues that came about because of their military service, whether they had toxic exposures because of their military service, whether they contracted illnesses uh, because of their military service. So it's important for the public to recognize there will still be grieving families. There will still be need for organizations like TAPS to provide comfort and care for those grieving families. And we're not gonna see the end of military casualties juxtaposition recently, you know, the 13 service members who were killed in the suicide attack in in Afghanistan. Lots of press attention given the circumstances, but a week later we had five sailors killed in a helicopter crash off the coast of California. Hmm. Training accidents occur. So again, there will continue to be casualties. There will continue to be families that lose loved ones because of their service in the military. And so TAPS is there to provide that. So TAPS provides grief counseling. It provides peer support. It provides mentorship opportunities. There are all kinds of things that TAPS does. Again, all focused on surviving families. Um, You know, the folks like to say that when a person loses a loved one who served in the military, again, regardless of location of their death or their cause of the death, grief is still there. The benefits are the same. That that family member still gets the folded American flag, whether they died in combat or they died of suicide or they died of an illness, right? And so helping people to understand that those things will still continue to occur and that the families will continue to need, need this kind of care and support even if the spotlight has shifted away from combat. The other thing to your point, Jess, is a lot of veterans and service members struggling with what's happened in Afghanistan, watching, but also struggling with just, not just what happened in Afghanistan, but our own experiences in Afghanistan or Iraq or any other places. 
part of the way that I got involved with TAPS was I became a what's known as a military mentor. So every Memorial Day here in Washington, D.C., TAPS convenes a national good grief camp, and they bring together from across the country families of the fallen, parents, uncles, grandparents, you name it, adults and children. So the children have what's known as good grief camp. And TAPS brings in military mentors who are there to reestablish that military connection that's severed when the loved one dies, right? Service member dies again of whatever cause, that family no longer has military connection. If they were living off base, after a little amount of time, they have to leave. A lot of them leave military communities and go back closer to their families. So it further removes them from the military community. So when they come together at TAPS, having military mentors allows those children to reestablish that contact. So I served as a military mentor for several years. Uh, and then I became what is known as a senior mentor, which is I describe as a mentor to the mentors. You know, I had now you know, several years of experience to then teach new mentors what to expect, how to operate, how to act, you know, what to do. And then I became a group leader. So I've been volunteering with TAPS for uh, over a decade now. And now uh, I am doing consulting work for the organization. Um, but again, I've done the National Good Grief Camp for most of the last 10, 10 or 11 years. And that's taps.org or 202-588-TAPS, 8277, taps.org or call 202-588-TAPS. And that, sorry, Corey, that, that number that you gave too is a 24-7 helpline. Uh, again, those survivors that just need anything. Sometimes they're calling looking for just somebody to talk to. Sometimes they're calling with a specific request. They need help uh, navigating how to, to get benefits or they need help with any number of things. And so that 24 hour helpline is meant to provide, you know, wraparound services to, to survivors to get them whatever help they need. TAPS also helps with educational benefits, not necessarily providing, but helping um, surviving families navigate what benefits might be available to their children, what scholarships might be available, things of that nature. Um, so, so it is a particular focus. Again, as I mentioned it, uh, earlier, so many of our current losses are due to suicide. And so TAPS has an entire part of the organization that is, is devoted to suicide prevention and postvention for those families that are suffering loss uh, and need help. Yeah. Well, we thank you for that. And uh, glad to know more about that, uh, that important organization taps. I have one last question, one important piece of business, and then we'll wrap up. Last okay. question is, do you have any questions for us? Wow. I should always be ready for that. <laughs> yeah. Cause part of it is uh, so in all the years uh, as a public affairs officer in the military, uh, I've conducted media training, you know, trained others on on how to respond to interviews. And, and one of the things we always tell them, if you ever get an open ended question that says, 
Is there anything else what you want to say? You always take that opportunity. Yeah. You never say, no, I'm done. Because that's your opportunity to say what you want to say. So with that, I'll tell you that I don't have questions for you as much as I want to congratulate you for starting this effort. Because after I left the Department of Homeland Security, I went to the Bipartisan Policy Center. And yeah. I spent three years there. I think it is important that we have reasonable discussions, that we find ways to bridge gaps, that we stop yelling at one another. The discourse in the country has, has gotten out of control and we need to find a way to bring it back, not just in our politics, <laughs> in our religion, in everything. One of the things Bipartisan Policy Center did around Thanksgiving uh, for the past couple of years was to try to encourage people to not avoid those topics, to, to the point of saying, if you can't talk with your family about these things, how can we expect anything to be accomplished? If, if we can't even talk to our own families about religion and politics and things like that, how do we expect our political leaders, our religious leaders to lead us to, to some kind of uh, place where we can get things accomplished? So uh, less a question and more, uh, again, a thanks and congratulations for taking on this project because we need more like that. So that's really encouraging. I really appreciate that. And if you can't tell, we're having a, a blast. <laughs> we're just really <laughs> enjoying doing it and getting to know some really interesting people that much better and sharing your story and, and perspectives with our growing audience. Uh, I, I take your point. It's, it, it is really important to be uh, salt and light. So I, I appreciate you taking the time. This was uh, enlightening, edifying, and a, a lot of good things. And I, I just, I really appreciate just getting to know you better. So thanks. Well, thank you. And thanks, Jessica, for bringing me in. Yeah, you bet. Good to have you, Dave. Yeah. Good, good to ask you some questions under a microscope for an hour and a half here. <laughs> well, yeah, be careful what you wish for. As, have you, as you've discovered, you know, again, I'm a public affairs officer. I could talk for hours. <laughs> All these things, you know, oh, that's the thing over over the long career. I've had so many stories, so many anecdotes, so many things. I try not to, you know, run down a rabbit trail uh, trail too much with you. Well, we we appreciate the time. We uh, yeah, the, we uh, we appreciate all the stories. So, like I said, we learned a lot. And for our listeners, as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, tell a friend about us. And go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. And have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan. And we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.